What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. What a day. We are certainly putting the dash and door dash today. Huge, huge demand for the company's IPO. The stock is surging at the open. Uh, it's up 78% right now at 182. The indicated range briefly touched 200, which would have been a, pretty much a doubling. What is it all telling us about the market today? We will have all the details. Plus, fresh warning signs for stocks, record high valuations by one metric, and sell signals close to being triggered will have the latest. And a big day for Disney is Robinhood next to go public and a 29-hour holiday work party. Let's start with DoorDash, though. Uh, let's bring in Deirdre Bosa, Leslie Picker uh, to kick the things off for us. Uh, Deirdre, I mean, I, I don't know if we should even extrapolate anything about this company or if this is just telling us what kind of, of market and investor chase there is for Alpha right now. It's pretty remarkable. I mean, this was a $16 billion company earlier this year. Now we're seeing it trade above $50 billion. Um, but it really does, yes, the market may be looking a little frothy when you take a look at this IPO and the other IPO of the day. But I think really it comes back to uh, the execution of the management, too. I mean, we knew from the S1 that this was a different kind of food delivery company than, say, a Grubhub or an Uber Eats. They'd been able to have a level of financial discipline, I think, at least from what we can see so far, that the others don't have. And that's really important. DoorDash has raised, what, $3 billion in its entire history before the IPO. Uber lost $5.8 billion this year alone. So what I think it might be showing us is that there can be some gig economy companies that don't just burn through billions of dollars, and the market is in part responding to that. I, I suppose uh, Bob Bassani is here as well, Bob. And I mean, at these, at these levels, we're talking about a company worth something in the range of $75 billion, and it's not profitable yet. Yeah, um, biggest IPO raise of the year, if you don't include the, the green shoe, as Leslie has mentioned. Uh, market cap, uh, yeah, north of 70 billion. So this will be the biggest one of the year. Snowflake was 42 billion. I don't have the numbers here, but that's my recollection. Was Snowflake was 42 billion dollar market cap when it came uh, public. So if you would have said in in April that this would be the biggest year since 2014 for IPOs, and 2014, remember, was uh, was a was a big one, was Alibaba. I would have laughed at you. But the the huge stimulus that we've had. The rather notable uh, hold up, hold move up in the stock market, uh, combined with uh, the fact we've got a known name here in DoorDash and we have very large retail presence, larger than we had a year ago, has really combined. Uh, nothing beats an up market. So let me tell you, that's the most important thing that's going on here. Uh, but yeah. you've really got a remarkable confluence of events, guys, to, that really push this thing and, to and the I stratosphere. 
Bob, I want to circle back. Not, I mean, it, it, there's two separate things at play here. I mean, there's the first day pops for these IPOs, and then there's what happens after they get in everybody else's hands. And interestingly enough, that's been a pretty good performer this year. We've talked about the Renaissance IPO basket. It is crushing the S&P. Yep. Even names like Snowflake that went public at some eye-watering valuations have done well. Even if you go back to last summer and look at Beyond Meat, I mean, it hasn't been that much of a dog, even though it's well off of the highs. Leslie, I guess I say all of that. Um, to kick off the point, I, I want you to elaborate on what you have so well already this week, but how much of this is market professionals looking to close out the year with a couple, you know, 10 extra percentage points of alpha that they can't find elsewhere? I mean, this is just a remarkable, remarkable move. I, I was excited, <laughs> and I say, you know, excited. I was shocked when it priced at 102, yeah. even more shocked when the range was at 155. And look, we're, we're up at 185 and change right now. Yeah, so advisors I was speaking to around this deal priced at 102, expecting it to trade up to about 130, 140. Uh, I don't think anyone really foresaw 182 for the opening price here, especially since they really did try to kind of limit that first day pop. They introduced this hybrid auction system. It was previously used with Unity. They tried it again, and this time on a much bigger scale since they raised $3.4 billion from this IPO. Uh, in order to kind of assess some data, use an algorithm to, to take in orders and find what could help them maximize the price by which to set for this IPO so that they don't leave so too much failed, money on the right? table. I mean, does, but Leslie, does that tell us whatever the fancy process was, they, left, they either left a ton of money on the table or what I really think is going on here is it would have been impossible to raise this amount. The whole point was for the for the investors involved to get this pop, don't you think? I mean, I, yeah. I have a hard time thinking that this is really a flaw of the IPO process. Well, there is kind of a, a fulfilling prophecy, as you mentioned earlier, with regard to the previous IPOs performing well. As long as the previous IPOs performing well, people will keep coming back to the well. So if you're an investor and you invested in Snowflake and you're sitting pretty for the year and you said, that deal worked and my banker is telling me that this deal is the next snowflake, they're going to be willing to pay whatever it takes to get allocation because they see this demand, as we've talked about, it's it's coming toward the end of the year. People have just a few more weeks to really lock in their outperformance for the year. And so if you're hearing that there's a hot deal like DoorDash, you're kind of in this I don't care what it takes. I'm going to pay whatever to get allocation. And then you have all of this retail demand coming on top of it in order to get into this deal. You see dynamics like this one where regardless of the amount of technology yeah. that you use to find a price, yeah. it's just going to go up. You know, ahead, they Bob. have been trying to get this right, how to get the price right on the open for 100 years. Okay, so this is an interesting study right. in behavioral <laughs> economics. How do you sort of game everybody else out in the future? So what has happened? That it, with that said, the difference between 102 and 182, that's unusually wide. Yeah. And we all know that. So how does this, how does that happen? And I think what you want to see here is I think the retail investor, the larger presence of the retail investor this year really is very important in this overall equation. And I'll tell you how I want to see this. Normally, on a good day, a IPO will trade 100% of the, of, the, of the float that we're seeing here. So that would be considered a lot of trading. I'll bet you we will see con a, 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 as much as that. And we open at 1 o'clock. I mean, mo normally, an IPO opens between 10 and 11 o'clock. We open three hours right. later, and I'll bet you you'll see enormous. And that will be a sign, I believe, and that the retail presence is much stronger than it has been this year than it historically is on these kinds of events. And, 
And Deirdre, Kelly, uh, let's not forget C3PO, as I like to call it. C3AI is the other uh, IPO that we had today. And lest anybody think this is just about DoorDash, uh, C3 <laughs> priced at 42, or IPO'd at 42, opened at 100, right. Deirdre. So this is not just about DoorDash. Yeah, and we talked to the CEO earlier, and I think he was a little bit shocked at how high uh, it had gone too. But let me talk about the opportunity a little bit. Aside from the first day pop, when it comes to a DoorDash and Airbnb, these are founder-led founder control tech companies. Look at sort of what retail investors, many of them have been looking at this year. Elon Musk at Tesla, Jeff Bezos at Amazon. These have been companies that just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger and attract attention from the investment world. Um, you have Chesky over at Airbnb and Tony Hsu at DoorDash. These guys are seasoned operators because these unicorns have been in the private market so long. They have been tested. So perhaps some investors are looking at this as an opportunity to get into a founder-led company, particularly as some of their rivals, I'm thinking Uber, I'm thinking Expedia, Booking Holdings, are not led by their founders. Real quickly, Bob, a final point here. Uh, is there data on how well, let's call it kind of the retail, the general public has done on these IPOs relative, you know, if you strip out that first day pop? I mean, it, again, it yeah. would seem like the performance has still been pretty strong, but this is where people can get burned. Yes, you have to make a distinction between the historical performance and what's happened this year. It's a little bit of an anomaly this year. Historically, on an IPO, in, it, certainly in the first year of trading, the big money is always made on the first day. If you get a first day pop there, those are the people that are ha bought in on the IPO in, in, initially. They got the initial allocation and sold on the first day. They're the ones who do really well historically. That's why a lot of IPO research companies separate trading after the first day when everybody's sort of cashing out who got the initial allocation, and then after that. The aftermarket performance of most IPOs has not been that great historically. This year is a bit of an anomaly. The aftermarket trading, I'm by aftermarket, I mean after the first day of trading, has been much stronger mm -hmm. than normal. That's, again, a sign of an upmarket, a huge interest in tech and biotech, which is the historic ground or early stage tech and biotech companies uh, for, for IPO. So again, it, it's a good sign. I don't know if it's going to last, though. This is a rather extraordinary year on many, many fronts. And it's an important thing to point out as we look at DoorDash up 73% right now. <laughs> Thank you all, Leslie Deirdre and our Bob Bassani. Let's bring in some market pros now to react to this monster IPO. It does come on the same day that Bank of America is warning stocks are trading at record high valuations if you look at so-called EV to EBITDA. The firm's sentiment gauge, also at its most stretched in 18 months and close to triggering a sell for the first time since the financial crisis. Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami. He is the CEO of Destination Wealth Management and Chris Zaccarelli is CIO of the Independent Advisor Alliance. It's great to have you both here. Michael, you've seen, you know, cycles. You went through 99. What do you make of today's uh, trading activity with DoorDash? Uh, it smells a little bit like 1999, Kelly. I mean, really, investors are not really so much focused uh, on fundamentals, uh, obviously, right? The IPO is priced at 102 because that is the maximum price that investors likely would pay on a fundamental basis. And now the stock's trading, I'm getting dizzy watching the stock bounce here at 175, 185, 180. So we really have a lot of speculation. I think what Bob Pisani said was really a fantastic point, which is look at the float. I think retail investors are making a huge move in this stock, the Robinhood world. I think knows this name, uses this name, 
And that tends to drive, I think, sentiment. And I think that's what we're really talking about. This is not a fundamental stock right now, not when you've lost half a billion dollars uh, last year. It's instead right. basically a sentiment stock. My so what kind of investor are you, sentiment or Buffett? Fair enough. And, and so if your clients called you know, and asked and said, you know, hey, did I miss the boat here? Do I need to be buying DoorDash? What would you tell them? Uh, they have. <laughs> and I've told them you probably will miss the boat, but you're also going to miss the other boat. You know what the other boat is? Uh, as again, Bob Pisani uh, pointed out, the other boat is, is that most investors make their money on the first day, the IPO investors. What really matters is if you're investing for long term, if this is retirement money, if this is money you can't afford to lose, you probably want to stay away from names that are highly speculative by cash flow names, boring as can be. But those are the kind of names that are going to be the foundation of long-term success. This is exciting. It's a nice real, real quick pop. Uh, but excitement comes with danger. And I think most of the people we work with are not looking for lots of danger. Sure, I understand that. Chris, what are your thoughts on this IPO today? Remember, it comes a day before we get Airbnb tomorrow. It caps a year of really, really strong IPO performance. And again, to emphasize what Bob said as well, I mean, it's been strong in the opening pops, obviously, but it's also been pretty strong uh, for the names in that IPO basket. I mean, they, they've been this emerging class of equities more or less is holding up there. All right, we'll fix uh, that and get back to Chris in just a moment. So, Michael, you get the question on that. I mean, you know, what, what's the distinction for you between a stock that is too hot and dangerous for most of your clients to touch right now and the fact that most of these emerging equities, these new IPOs, these, they have actually done pretty well? Uh, you're talking about price, right? Think about what you're talking about over here. Over time, price. over time, yeah. So that's, well, what, what's time? We're talking months, right? So... Uh, price and, and months is a de definition, <laughs> Kelly, of momentum, right? So fundamental investing essentially is going to say, let's look at historic cash flows. Let's look at cash flows not only during the pandemic. Let's look at excuse me, cash flows that start to normalize when people are going out to eat, when people are not just ordering food constantly through DoorDash, which I'm a user of DoorDash, great service. Uh, am I going to use it as much when I can actually go someplace and sit down and have a meal? Probably not. So that's what you just have to be aware of. So I think that it's important that you recognize that uh, these are the kind of names someone can certainly chase. It's just a matter of whether or not this is really consistent with your investment philosophy as you invest your portfolio. And I think investors have to ask themselves that question. And Chris, what were you saying? What I was about to say was, you know, I think a lot of these IPO companies that we've seen this year, they really fall into that COVID resistant basket. So for those companies that are going to do really well when you're stay at home stocks, but will also do well in the future, that's why you've seen such good performance. But valuations are getting really high. And so we think that's a warning sign. We would be cautious at this point for the market as a whole. You can really see the risk on sentiment that's, um, you know, pervasive within this IPO environment. But that is across the, the broader market as well. We definitely would look to this as a, as a sign to hold a little bit of cash on the sidelines, watch for the upcoming catalysts that are coming down the road. We've got fiscal talks. We've got uh, the Georgia elections in January, which will determine control of the entire U.S. Senate. So there's a lot of catalysts coming down the road. Uh, valuations are high. The stock market over the next uh, 12 months, if you look at the multiple, it's 22.1 times earnings for the S&P 500. Over the last 25 years, it's been about 16 and a half times. So we're pretty elevated from history, 
you know, we're not in the 1990s yet. Back then it was over 27 times. So it's not that the market can't go higher. It's just that we would exercise caution at this point because we think valuations right. in general are quite a bit higher than, than average. But Chris, what about those who say, though, you know, if, if we're looking at least on an earnings basis, that earnings next year could come in pretty strong? I mean, is there, are we underestimating the earnings power in this market, as you guys have said, once things open back up, start to normalize? Earnings could definitely be a lot higher next year, and we do expect that. Earnings were depressed artificially because of what happened with COVID and the lockdowns this year. But even if you're talking about 190 times earning, excuse me, if you're, even if you're talking about $190 in S&P 500 earnings next year, at a 20 multiple, you know, you're, you're looking at uh, 3,600. So we're already right around, uh, excuse me, if you're at $180, you're at 3,600. Or if you're at $190, which would be high, then you're looking at 3,800. So the S&P is already pretty close to 20 times what's likely to be a stretch for next year's earnings. Doesn't mean that we can't have multiples expand. Doesn't mean that earnings can't surprise even above that. But uh, as an investor who's trying to be somewhat cautious, I think it makes sense to, to pick your spots and, and to look for where the market has the best opportunities, not necessarily the ones where the valuations are highest. Yeah, and it's amazing. I mentioned earlier C3 AI, which is the other IPO today, up a price at 42, opened at 100. And uh, according to our data team, it's only the ninth best IPO open of the year. I mean, that is just emblematic of what this hey, market Kelly, has Kelly, been doing. I wanted to, we'll leave it there. If I could, Go ahead real quickly, I, Michael. Let me add something real quick. Even if earnings aren't as high as maybe some expect, you have to understand we're looking at year-over-year comparisons. That would really drive stock prices. So there's a difference between earnings and stock prices. That's why the stock market's gone up this year is the expectation. So be aware that earnings, if they come in reasonably positive, they got great year-over-year comparisons. That could potentially be a catalyst for the market next year. Yeah, you would think. Exactly. We'll see. I appreciate you both uh, joining us today talking about this DoorDash IPO and uh, the rest of the whole market. Michael Yoshikami and Chris Zaccarelli. And a quick note, the S&P, which has climbed 14 percent in 2020 already, has just four names that are still in the red for the year. You can find them on CNBC.com slash pro. So head on over there. Coming up, the DoorDash splash is setting the stage for Airbnb's IPO, which is next on the docket. But the company is facing one major issue that investors may be ignoring. We'll tell you about its problems in China. And Disney hits an all-time high as investor day looms. Will streaming be enough to keep investors interested as parks reclose and consumers stay away from theaters? We're back in a couple. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Even as we catch our breath from DoorDash, Airbnb is next on the IPO deck. It prices tonight and starts trading tomorrow. But the company is facing several challenges, especially when it comes to China. And that's where we find our Eunice Yoon, who's live in Beijing with this angle for us. Hi, Eunice. 
Hi, Kelly. Well, you know, despite U.S.-China tensions, regulatory issues, and fierce local competition, Airbnb sees China as important to its future growth. And we spoke to one business person who said that he's looking very much forward to the company's bigger push here. Beijing architecture student Runjun Kun is excited about Airbnb's IPO. Not because he's an investor, he's a host, renting out rooms in this traditional courtyard home. If Airbnb gets more funding and invests in promoting home sharing in China, I can get more customers, he says. At $2.9 billion in 2019, China's home sharing industry is still a fraction of the size of the U.S.'s, but growing in the double digits every year. Airbnb has expanded fast, winning over Chinese with its flexible app and travel choices, especially overseas. But the U.S. home-sharing giant faces stiff competition here, with strong local backers. Tu Jia, the dominant player, partners with travel titan Trip.com. Xiaoju is backed by Jack Ma's Alibaba, Elong, Tencent. And Meituan B&B is pushed business by another major tech name, sister firm Meituan Dianping. Airbnb also faces scrutiny back home due to data privacy concerns doing business in China. Run isn't concerned. He's looking to refurbish and rent another two homes nearby. Beyond a place to sleep, young Chinese want a unique experience, a cultural touch or advice from a local, he says. That's why I have faith in the future of homestays. And Kelly, one thing that I found interesting about data privacy, you know, Airbnb is getting a a pushback in the U.S. about maybe not providing enough or providing too much information to the Chinese authorities. But here in China, its reputation is actually for having the best data privacy protection because it doesn't allow the landlords or the hosts to see the full contact information and the, the ID number of the tenant. That's interesting. And Eunice, I guess with any of these companies, these American companies who are successful in China, I just can't help but wonder, is China really going to let them win? I mean, are they not ultimately going to back their own state, not state sponsored, but their own homegrown version uh, because they have the, the kind of system where they can simply just decide who the winners and losers are? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is a risk for Airbnb. I think for any um, U.S. or international company that wants to grow the business, it doesn't mean that the company can't have a good business, but it's definitely one of the risks. I, I actually asked that Airbnb host if he was concerned that at the end of the day, Airbnb might not be around. And he said that that he really wasn't. And, and a lot of that is because Airbnb has been able to provide quite a good service. Uh, the people... Most people here, if they're going to use a site, are using Airbnb, and for now, at least, they find that Airbnb provides the um, kind of highest quality service, the easiest, um, you know, the most trustworthy service when it comes to uh, people who will come to stay with them or for them to be able to use a service to go overseas or to another destination. That's true. There's probably a lot of value in it being uh, well known to the international traveler uh, for whenever that business comes back. Eunice, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Eunice Yun in Beijing for us. And it'll be another exciting day with that uh, IPO tomorrow. Coming up here, Bank of America's new survey shows consumers working from home plan to spend less in nearly every category but one. We've got the details and the stock impact. Plus, DoorDash open for trading and what an open it is. 
took till almost 1 p.m. It's up 82% priced at 102. It's trading at 186 and change. We'll talk about what that will mean for Airbnb. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Bank of America is out with its latest home work survey, revealing some insights on holiday spending, moving trends, and whether or not work from home fatigue is starting to set in. For more, I'm joined by retail analyst Liz Suzuki with Bank of America Securities, doing a little work from home herself, probably. Liz, it's good yeah. to have you. And uh, the headline here will be familiar to our audience. It's that uh, people say their spending is going down and everything but on their pets. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, really, the family pet is the winner this holiday season. Our survey showed that uh, that consumers plan to spend less on most categories uh, over the holidays, except for one, which was pet toys and accessories. So, you know, even though people aren't taking their kids to Disney World, the, the pet is really getting the bulk of that spending back. Yeah, and we've seen that with the performance of these names uh, this year with the, I think it's PetSmart or Pet, I think Petco is now coming back to market for the third time. Um, but you make an important distinction, which is there's a difference between what people say they're going to do on their spending and what they're actually doing. What have you found on the latter? That's right. I mean, I think it is really important to differentiate between what our survey respondents said they plan to spend on and then what we've actually seen in the data itself. So our, our Bank of America credit card data continues to show very high levels of spending in categories like consumer electronics, uh, home decor, and these were both categories that our survey had showed uh, people spend, plan to spend less on. So we're, we're not seeing that happening in the actual spending. Yeah, and that's actually held up relatively well. Let's talk about a couple of the stocks that you cover, Home Depot and Lowe's. There are some findings in here that are relevant for them, specifically on the home buying and the work from home side. Tell us about that. Yeah, so our, our survey showed once again, and this is the third time we've run it. So we initially ran the survey in June, which is really like in the midst of COVID. And then we ran it again in September and now in early December. And what we've seen is that an increasing percentage of, uh, of people plan to move to less population dense areas. So even though there's this positive vaccine news that's come out, the intention to move is still really strong. And so that's very favorable for home improvement retailers like Home Depot, Lowe's, Floor and Decor, where housing turnover is an important driver for, for renovation demand. And so would you say the kind of takeaways from the investor are 
there can still be legs for Home Depot and Lowe's. A lot of people are worried about, even Stan Druckenmiller mentioned, you know, are they going to have a hangover um, as people kind of go back to normal? And this has pulled forward a lot of demand. Um, so Home Depot, Lowe's, maybe even a tractor supply. I mean, where are the names that, this, that these results leave, leave you the most positive on? Exactly. Yeah, we think that there are some COVID beneficiaries that continue to grow into 2021 and beyond, and especially those that have really sealed their their dominant market share and are taking market share from smaller retailers in the category. So like you mentioned, Home Depot, Lowe's, Tractor Supply, these companies have now very, very strong cash balances. One of the things we saw from Lowe's today at their analyst day was that their outlook for next year, even in a worst case scenario, they still have their operating margin up and they plan to do nine billion dollars in in share buybacks so these companies have large cash hoards that they can then deploy towards shareholder uh growing shareholder value and also towards uh investments in deepening their competitive moat for the future so you know we really like those uh those large well-capitalized retailers that are dominant in their sectors all right liz uh, thanks again for joining us we appreciate it today Thank you. Liz Suzuki with Bank of America. The family pet wins Christmas, she says. Uh, Coming up, backdating claims and additional stimulus checks. Just a few ways states are working to help the unemployed as the country awaits congressional action. We have those details. But first, the Renaissance IPO ETF more than doubling this year, up 113%. We're going to dig into the biggest names in the fund and why one biotech stock that posted huge gains this year could soon get the boot out of it. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on these markets today. Remember, the S&P and the NASDAQ closed at record highs yesterday. We're over 3,700 on the S&P for the first time. Today, struggling to hold the open, uh, which saw some gains. The Dow is up over 100 points at the highs. But we are at session lows right now. We're down 159. That's a half percent drop. We're down eight-tenths on the NASDAQ and 1.7% on the NASDAQ. So a pretty ugly session there. Um, As I mentioned, we opened higher, and we actually hit another slew of records shortly after that. The Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, and the transports all hit new highs before the pullback you can see here. Across the sectors, they're all in the red now. Real estate, technology, communication services, those are the biggest laggards. And let's get a quick check on DoorDash. Maybe people are selling everything else they own buying this name because the stock, which priced its IPO at 102, opened at 182. It is just below that level right now, 180 and change, up 76%. This makes it upwards of about a 70, 80 billion dollar market cap right now. Uh, we'll continue to follow the story. Over to Sue Herrera in the meantime for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Big Ten athletic directors are expected to let undefeated Ohio State play in the conference's championship game. A vote is expected later today, which would remove the six-game minimum that would have prevented Ohio State from playing. In Michigan, a belated recount has reversed the outcome of a county commissioner's race. Initially, the election was declared a tie and then decided by the candidates drawing pieces of paper to see who won. The recount shows the loser of that draw actually carried the election. In India, health experts have found traces of lead and nickel in blood samples from patients suffering an unknown illness. Nearly 600 people have been hospitalized. The vast majority have now been released. And in Guatemala, the Christmas season starts with a centuries-old tradition called burning the devil. It's been performed since Spanish conquistadors arrived in the 16th century. Kel, you are up to date. I will send it back to you.
Love it. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera back at headquarters. As we talk about DoorDash and Airbnb, we wanted to take a closer look at the Renaissance IPO ETF today, ticker IPO. Now, it's performed the broader, outperformed the broader markets this year substantially. It's up 112%. Let's dig into it a little bit. What has been behind those gains? Here are the top performers in the ETF this year. Moderna leads the pack. It's up 737%. Remember, they're the second leading vaccine candidate. Uh, Zoom coming in second, up 476%. Uh, Cloudflare uh, finally is up about 353%. So again, the top holdings right now uh, in the ITF itself include Moderna, Zoom, also Uber and Pinterest. Of course, these stocks after some time are no longer uh, considered IPOs. So what happens then? Companies are removed two years after their initial trading date when the stocks become what they call seasoned equities. Moderna will actually be removed when the IPO rebalances next week, and that will make room and cash for new companies like DoorDash and Airbnb. Speaking of Moderna, it's down 11% today. Robinhood's public plans, that's coming up next, along with Disney's fresh all-time high and its streaming pivot. And party like it's 2020, the office holiday party goes virtual. It's all in rapid fire after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should also be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, Julia Borson, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, one and all. First up, let's talk some Disney. Their investor day kicks off tomorrow. This has been nothing short of a tumultuous year for Disney, but against all odds, the stock has clawed its way back to an all-time high. Thanks to the massive growth of Disney+, Plus. they face a lot of competition, though, as everyone goes all in on streaming. For good reason, more people are cutting the cord than ever. Last quarter was the first time pay TV operators lost more than a million subscribers. At the same time, TV streaming bundles, Julia, added just as many. Um, what does Disney need to say and not say tomorrow in order to keep the positive uh, investor sentiment flowing? Well, what we're seeing, Kelly, is really that people are willing to pay for content. They're just paying for it in a different format. And I think whatever the concern is about cord cutting, there is optimism about people paying for these digital streaming bundles. And there's also a lot of optimism about Disney+. Plus. I think it's really notable that Disney's big investor day tomorrow, which is going to really be about the focus on the direct-to-consumer relationship and how they're going to navigate these weird waters going forward as we hopefully emerge from COVID next year and as people can start to get back to movie theaters, I think it's really important to note that it comes on the heels of Warner Media's big announcement that it's going to be, coming, be putting its films in theaters the same time it puts them yeah. on HBO Max. And really this question of, you know, is anything possible and how are you going to navigate this new world where people really want to be able to see stuff at home? And speaking of which, Mike, I mean, did you see the, the Roku and, uh, what do we call this, an upgrade over at City. I mean, they moved their price target from 220 to 375 yeah. That's the street high now. And they're talking, I mean, you know, you can go through the reasons, but a lot of them, they're just talking about the value of each, each additional customer that Roku acquires and, and how big a number that is. For sure. For, for a long time, Netflix was really the only way uh, to purely play, you know, internet TV, streaming, whatever you want to call it. Roku is now of a scale where it's completely of that size as well, and it's growing very fast. So we're in a, a market right now 
that is valuing future dollars a whole lot more than today's dollars in terms of revenue. And it, as much as you want to pile on to the, the expectations for the future, the market is willing to bid for it, at least at this moment. With, when it comes to Disney, it's fascinating because it, it's at an all-time high. The valuation is beyond an all-time high because of all the debt. And yet, so much of their business is still, uh, you know, pretty much impaired based on the pandemic. So it's a combination of a shutdown play and a reopening play all at once. Got a lot of credit uh, so far up front. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, there's Roku shares, which are fractionally lower today, but have more than doubled this year. Let's move on and talk about what could be the next IPO, and it's Robinhood. They may be tapping Goldman to lead the IPO, the platform experiencing meteoric growth during the pandemic, with retail traders becoming a major factor in the market this year. And Leslie, what are you hearing at this point about uh, Robinhood and, and demand for it? I mean, in light of uh, DoorDash and everything. This, there's no way this one would be before year end, right? Oh, no, it can't come before year end. As far as I know, they haven't even filed with the SEC yet. Based on a couple of people who I was able to talk to about this deal, uh, they have not officially hired bankers, signed all the paperwork and so forth. It's discussions that they're having with people, letting them know that they're likely hired, you know, that kind of dance that they're doing. But it does sound like they are moving forward with an IPO 2021. Uh, it's funny because some reports out there have floated the target valuation as being $20 billion. If, there has, if there's anything that this week's IPOs have shown us, it is that you cannot predict <laughs> valuations for these IPOs, especially when you're looking at about six to nine months in the future. Things can change dramatically, but this clearly is similar to uh, DoorDash and Airbnb in that it is another company that's benefited from the pandemic. Yeah, Mike, one of the great reads uh, everyone should check out was Jason Zweig <laughs> talking about his Robin Hood experience in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. 100%. Uh, it was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. And but the focus on their business model, if if and when they IPO, I mean, it's more is it more or less still a pay for order flow type of model? And how much scrutiny were they going to come under? For the most part, yes. Pay for payment for order flow. Uh, margin lending, of course, is also a part of it. You would pay for that if you wanted to to borrow money against your account. Uh, but right now, this will be marketed as a fintech company, not necessarily as, oh, this is a comp to interactive brokers, which, by the way, is a $23 billion valuation. It has a couple of hundred or $300 billion in client assets. And it's not really necessarily about that. As we have the intense engagement of a cohort of investors, of young consumers who the rest of the industry can't really reach very easily. And yes, we've gamified the whole system, as Jason Zweig pointed out, and it makes you want to just kind of win your next trade. And it gives you all these claps uh, on your on your <laughs> smartphone when you do so. And uh, and, you know, I guess this is the market we're in. I think uh, take that as both a, a good thing for risk appetites and a warning sign for just uh, kind of how you know credulous we are right now. And I'm sure there's going to be a whole raft of stories about whether the IPO of Robinhood itself marks some kind of market peak yes. if we don't see it already at that point. Right, we just brought up DoorDash. Let's talk about that for a moment. It was the first of two blockbuster IPOs this week. And the trading today has just been nothing sort of sort of astonishing. So it's ticker Dash. It opened just about an hour ago. And uh, the open price was 182. Now, it priced at 102. Uh, it's up 77% right now. It's been pretty steady the past, you know, 45 minutes. This comes as Airbnb is set to debut tomorrow. And Leslie, is it as goes DoorDash, so goes Airbnb? Or are people kind of separating and looking at them very differently? Uh, we have seen similar patterns, at least procedurally, 
as this IPO process for the two deals have kind of coincided with one another, they both priced or set a certain range. They raise that range. DoorDash priced above that range. It's sounding like Airbnb will look to do the same, although could still price kind of at the high end of that range is the chatter that I'm hearing, Uh, you know, either above or at the high end of that boosted range. And so, you know, they're both using this hybrid auction method that we've talked about that's supposed to try and limit that first day pop. They may be looking at this one and, and the better than expected demand on the first day of trading and maybe price a bit higher, be a little bit more aggressive than they otherwise would have if they, you know, didn't see today's trading. But it's clear that there is a dynamic here. Investors are clamoring for these deals because it is toward the end of the year. If they sense something is hot, and as you know, a lot of this has to do with psychology. A lot of it has to do with kind of the chatter, uh, not on the trading floors anymore, but at least in the, in the Internet ether, uh, in the chat rooms and so forth, about whether this deal is hot and whether people should be buying in. And that limits price sensitivity. Yeah. And so that's kind of why you're seeing moves like this today. Airbnb may try and limit, it, limit that with more aggressive pricing tonight. Uh, but we'll see. They may see something similar because sometimes this stuff is out of their hands. Julia, what would you add? Well, I just think it's interesting here. It's not just DoorDash that's having this massive first day pop. I mean, DoorDash up 75%. It's also C3AI, this artificial intelligence company. That stock of over 100%. There really is this built-in expectation that there's going to be a big first day pop. I think there's a lot of speculative trading because of that. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if the following IPOs try to make sure they're not leaving that money on the table. We just got to get a closing word from Michael Santoli here. Mike, what, what do your spidey senses tell you about what's going on here today? I mean, there's such an appetite for something that is both a, a recognizable brand name that everybody uses uh, and that basically it's not based on this year's numbers or next year's numbers. It's really about the overall market. You can kind of draw that as, as large as you want. So it all makes sense. And I would just modify one only one thing that Leslie says is that it's not o- mostly about psychology. It's almost entirely about psychology in the first and second day. And, and so I do think that maybe the Nasdaq being down a couple percent today is going to take a little bit uh, of the steam out of it. But otherwise, I I think you're still going to have they're going to try to gun these every time until one fails. Yep. And we'll see how tomorrow goes on that note. Before we go, uh, this story made us all chuckle. What the lengths that some companies are going to this year for the holiday office party. Why not just get rid of it? All right. Here's here's some examples. This is according to Axios. PayPal is hosting a 29 hour virtual event that includes cooking classes, circus performers and a dance off. Leslie, who needs uh, an office holiday party? Uh, I mean, are, or do, do we want one? I mean, how does That's it even, I, I, I can't, what do you think? Well, I don't have any other plans, so that sounds good to me <laughs> these days. No, it's funny how 2020 makes you uh, kind of reflect and miss things like holiday parties where, you know, any other year you'd be like, oh, gosh, I have another holiday party to go to. I just want to go sit on my couch uh, and watch some streaming television. Um, as we talked about earlier this year, you know, you kind of miss that stuff. It's the stuff that you take for granted. I, I applaud those HR departments that are trying to be creative and get people together. I don't know if it replaces the same thing, but, you know, perhaps people can get in a little less trouble if it is virtual. I know. I feel bad. I mean, Julie, you can imagine like these these companies that put on these huge events every year. I'm talking about the ones that are putting on the party. I mean, how they are making I, I, I don't even want to know how bad their financial situation is. And in the meantime, for the kind of holiday office party, what is how do we make the most of it? 
Well, I think there is this fundamental challenge if you're trying to have a party in these times. Number one is that everyone is Zoomed out. People are in Zoom all day long. They don't really want to do another Zoom at 7.30 at night, even if it's supposed to be festive. And then there's also the challenge of how to make anything feel different when we're all sitting in the same chair in our home all day long. But one thing that I think really is interesting, Kelly, is that some of these companies have adapted. I went to a holiday event where there were cocktails, like a cocktail kit delivered to my house. I've heard of others where they're doing wine tasting with little mini tasters of wine. So the people who are Zooming together are actually doing something tangible together, such as drinking a fancy cocktail. So I think there's been some innovation there and there's a lot of experimentation, but it's still hard. Does Santoli boycott uh, the, uh, the holiday Zoom party? I was just going to say, I thought I was the only one who was kind of old and boring enough to say I would never want to go to the holiday party. But apparently <laughs> it's a general sentiment here with this group. Yeah, it's, Intergenerational. It's uh, but, I, but this year I would be there with bells on, I agree, uh, in other circumstances. Leslie, Julia, and Mike, thank you all today. We appreciate it. Uh, that does it for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, as lawmakers on both sides of the aisle continue to tussle over a stimulus bill, states are finding creative ways to get cash to the unemployed. We're going to look at some of those solutions and their costs next. And be sure to tune into CNBC tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's the path forward for race and opportunity in America. A closer look at the economics of the Latino community, including representation in corporate America, education, and entrepreneurship. Stay with us. Welcome back. Without additional stimulus, states are stepping in and coming up with some creative ways to get money in the hands of the unemployed. Rahel Solomon joins me now with a closer look at just how they're doing so. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Well, more than 20 million people are still receiving unemployment of some sort, but money is drying up. Nearly every program created to help those who have lost their jobs has either ended months ago or will soon end. So local governments, as you said, are trying to do what they can The mayor of D.C., for example, announced this week that it's issuing a $1,200 payment to D.C. residents who were on pandemic unemployment assistance. That's coming from its CARES Act funding. Connecticut's governor announced an executive order to help nearly 40,000 residents qualify for lost wages assistance. New Jersey also expanded its LWA program. And Pennsylvania is speeding up the process of backdating claims to make up for those long delays when people initially filed But Kelly, the question is, are these measures just a Band-Aid fix? Well, Elizabeth Pancotti is a policy advisor at Employee America. That's a left-leaning think tank. She tells us these are more like stitches, absolutely necessary and very helpful, but it doesn't get at the root problem of the initial giant gash, adding that while the effort from states is applaudable, it's really the federal government that has to step up and extend and fund these programs. And Kelly, if there is not action in Washington soon, The Brookings Institution projects that by the end of this month, about 10 million people will lose benefits. Is it dependent, Rahel, on the states having the financial wherewithal to do this, or are some just more creative than others? We wondered the same thing. Not exactly, because the states that we mentioned have all had to borrow from the federal trust fund, so they're not exactly in the greatest financial shape. I think it just more so depends on the financial need in those places. I think they're just stepping up, seeing that the need is so dire. Fair enough. Yeah, that would explain, especially, like you said, in some of the states like New Jersey. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon following the story for us. That does it for us on The Exchange today. Up next on Power Lunch, we'll check in on shares of FireEye, which are falling after the company said it was the victim of what appears to be a state-sponsored cyber attack. We'll talk to a former National Security Agency hacker about it. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this break.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.